0: This episode discusses themes of domestic violence, which may be distressing for some listeners. If you or anyone you know is currently experiencing or has experiences with domestic violence, please remember that you are not alone. Contact 1-800-RESPECT or ICSA for support. More details in the show notes. Call 000 if you're in immediate danger. Another quick heads up that because of some isolation restrictions, we had to record this episode virtually. So the audio quality for this episode is a little different to normal. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy,
1: And I'm Sam then. Thanks for joining us. In collaboration with the upcoming Behind Closed Doors event... This episode is the second installment of our two-part series exploring the topic of domestic violence. In part one, we were joined by two women with lived experiences who are now doing powerful advocacy work in this space. Make sure to check out that episode if you haven't already, as well as our mini-episode to learn more about Behind Closed Doors.
0: In this second instalment, we speak with another two inspirational women, Psychologist Menika Cook and Caseworker Kitu Randawa, who are doing amazing and important things to change the narrative when it comes to domestic violence as part of ICSA, the Indian and Subcontinent Crisis Support Agency.
1: Menika and Kitu share their incredible knowledge and perspectives about the prevalence of domestic violence in South Asian communities, the stigmas, barriers and systemic challenges for South Asians to seek help, the changes needed in broader Australian society to better support victims of domestic violence and plenty more. Make sure to check out our show notes for more information about ICSA and where you can get tickets for Behind Closed Doors.
0: Now on to the episode. Kitu and Menika, thank you so much to the both of you for joining us tonight for this episode. Before we get kick-started, could you please introduce yourselves? We'll start with you, Menika.
2: In a former life, I was a corporate HR director, retired and took up my psychotherapy studies and I'm a practicing psychotherapist as well as an activist. And about four years ago, I joined Kitu in this wonderful organization she formed to give the mental
3: health support that is required. So, Kitu, over to you. Thank you, Minika. Okay, so I wear a few hats because I've changed careers. My name is Kitu Randhawa. I started off my career in procurement, government contracting in both government and in the private sector. So, I've done all levels of government. I've done corporate and commercial, and I'm now in the community sector. So a few years ago, I realised that there were some gaps with servicing our communities in terms of when they need help. So I, with a few other people, got together and we came up with the concept of the Indian Subcontinent Crisis and Support Agency. I'm one of the original founders. It is kind of my baby. But to say that it's my baby would say that all the work that everyone else does is not as important. But look, without them, we couldn't do it. So people like Menica have joined on afterwards, just been so invaluable in getting our work off the ground and moving it
1: forward. That's awesome. And seeing people like you is amazing because I feel like I'm sort of in the same place in my career when I've realized that I want to do something bigger than myself and not just make rich people richer. But that's (laughs) another conversation for another day. Um, But Medica, can you tell us a little bit about your role within the organization and how your expertise is brought to ICSA?
2: Um, My role uh, specifically, let's call it, is I, often get referrals from the Indian Crisis and Support Agency because they have come across somebody who is suffering either from domestic abuse or diary abuse, or there is something going on in their lives, migration, or whatever is causing them trauma. And many of them are so badly affected that I will have a person referred on to me because they are suffering some of the if you want to call it manifestations of trauma or sadness or loneliness or anxiety. So that's how I come into it. But on another, I've got people coming to me directly because I'm listed online as a culturally appropriate South Asian therapist. So that brings me quite a few people as well.
1: Amazing. And Kitu from your end, do you manage more of the operational side of the organization?
3: Um, I get the privilege of doing that, but I'm also a full-time caseworker in terms of domestic and family violence, which can also sometimes be called a support worker. I'm also an accredited family dispute resolution practitioner, so family dispute deals with separation, it deals with divorce, and it deals a lot with parenting orders, but we've put the cultural lens on it and we now look at family reconciliation conferences using the same model. And the same process. So that's what I've kind of developed over the time. And that's what we're running with at the moment. So I suppose the work between myself and Menika is that when I'm doing my casework and support work, it's very practical in terms of what do you need, money, accommodation, and all these sort of things. But I see people who are literally broken, they've lost the will they're despondent and they are completely feeling isolated. So in terms of my support work, I don't have the capacity to then be the counsellor and hold their hand and talk through their issues. So that's where it seamlessly moves on to somebody like Menica, and quite often it is Menica, to then take up helping them come to terms with their emotional and mental um, crises.
0: Incredible. I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness today. It's just amazing the the work that the both of you are doing. Um, Something that we spoke about in the last episode where we interviewed two people who had personal experience with domestic violence was the different ways that domestic violence can manifest. So I guess to peel it back a little bit and to hear from the both of you as experts, could you take us through some of the ways that domestic violence can be present within families and Kitu we can start with you and then Manika feel free to fill in any of the gaps as well.
3: I suppose um, the key thing to remember is that domestic violence is not something that happens overnight. A lot of people seem to think you've had that big argument that's it, it's domestic violence but really what we consider to be domestic family violence or abuse is a pattern of behaviour that's systemic and sustained. So it goes over a period of time and it keeps repeating And that behaviour could be an abuse of physical abuse, sexual abuse. Often it will go into something non-physical first. So it might be social isolation. It might be financial control, coercive control. And it happens so subtly. And so, you know, it's very much occurs by stealth. That's why a lot of people who are victims do not recognise themselves as victims until things go too far and it escalates. Um, But quite often other people can start seeing the signs. You know, you've got a friend that used to go out with all the time and now she never turns up, always makes excuses. You know, doesn't like to sit with other women in the group, but will sit with her husband. These are the kind of, you know, sometimes the early warning signs that we can miss. But the problem is that in this country that we see domestic violence really manifest when it gets to that escalation point when someone has no money, has been locked away, is being battered, those sort of things, and that's when people like us intervene or, you know, the police. Everything that you have said
2: is totally right. I think it's, you know, it's the pushing, kicking, punching, which is almost the last ways that this is shown, but it starts with all that financial abuse and economic abuse and being isolated. The other thing I've also discovered, so much of biting criticism and disrespect that the person's persona is just broken down, that they think they're so dreadful, they lack so much self-esteem, they don't know how to pick themselves up. And I'm sure Kido has come across that, where she's seen broken women weeping, saying, I'm no good.
3: You know, how can I be of use to my husband? Just to add to that or to sort of, you know, complete the circle, People get surprised when they hear the victim say, but I still love him and I want to go back to him and I want to be with him. And some of that is to do with the fact that at the early part of the relationship, this could be a very loving, caring, attentive, generous, romantic person that, you know, completely besots you. Then the abuse starts slowly, underneath, underlying in those small ways. And so it's not unusual to find people who Want to hold on to that early memory of the good times and say there is good in this person, especially when you've got children and go, "This is my child's father or mother," because it isn't just one one directional. And so that can often be very confusing to the wider communities. Do they say, "Why doesn't she just leave?" You know, I wouldn't put up with that. But you've seen one incident; you've not seen that lead up of the entire relationship or the family ecology.
0: Mm. That's such a great point. And another thing that you had also mentioned previously, Kitu, is there's a fine line sometimes, right? And it's usually a lot of smaller things that can happen as a lead up to then the actual domestic violence that can take place. Do you have any advice for how to identify the smaller things that can happen at the beginning that maybe people can pass up? and not really classify under domestic violence because it hasn't reached that extreme just yet?
3: Um, From my point of view, I think two things that you might look at, and one of them may be quite um, unpalatable to people. The first thing is have a look at who you were and who you are today. Were you really sociable and now you're not sociable? You know, did you enjoy things? Now you don't. Are you, you know, constantly feeling like you have to defend yourself? you're always having to justify who you are, validate yourself. That's one thing. The other thing, which is the unpalatable one, is when somebody criticises your relationship, don't dismiss it by saying, oh, you're just jealous or you don't want to see me happy. By all means, you defend your relationship, but have a think about it. Do some reflection and critical thinking about, why is that person saying these things about my relationship? And, yes, sometimes it's going to be jealousy, but if you... Put the two together that you can then see the difference in yourself and you can see what other people are saying to you and then have some reflection. This is where therapists do come in because they can help you do that. But then if you see that change is going on, then it's starting to recognize. But also remember, nobody wants to be a victim. So this is a very clinical approach that we're talking about. For somebody going through it, their natural default position is to protect their position.
2: All very true. That's something That I would say, when you start getting criticized relentlessly, being put down, and you might want to look at what was a triggering incident, and we may come to it later, you know, is it diary, is it parents interfering, whatever it is. But when that starts, you need to reflect as to where it started, why it started, and how you are reacting to it, how you're defending yourself. And that will be quite a gauge as to whether you are happy now and were you happy before. Personally, I often think, you know, when the romance, usually the first two or three years are the romance and the lovey-dovey part, after that, a lot of reality sets in. You begin, now begin to work out, why am I isolated? Why am I being stopped from seeing my family? Why am I being told I'm such an idiot? You know, that's what we need to look at.
3: I was going to say some of the things that I find that really, it still as a worker, when I hear it, it really appalls me, is when that partner destroys something that means so much to you. So it might be a childhood toy or a photograph of your parent and it's the only one you've got, that when they destroy something that valuable and personal to you, then you really need to ask the question why.
1: Yeah, that's so true because often when people are in situations like that, to your point, they might hold on to all of the good things without confronting the negatives that are going on around them, right? And I guess sometimes it does take an objective party to call it out to be able to recognise it in that way. Um, But I guess if we were to take a few steps back and just look at the Australian landscape as a whole, I feel like in the last few years there have been more conversations around domestic violence in the broader space, but there's still obviously such a long way to go when it comes to this issue. Um, What would you say are some of the more systemic challenges when it comes to how Australia deals with domestic violence, Manika?
2: The systemic challenges that we are seeing are people have come here either as temporary uh, residents or as refugees or as students, and then they have a long pathway before they begin to get some permanent residency, before they get citizenship. Sometimes they spend 10 or 12 years in between. And in between, they have very little support. And then what they're discovering is that the normal, that if they get into a relationship or they're going to get married, they really discover how alone and isolated that they are. And what we need is more services in terms of housing, I can say a Centrelink, Medicare, affordable childcare, but I'll let Kitu go into it because she's an
3: expert in there. You're absolutely right that we are having conversations, but from where I said, we're not having the right conversations yet. We've only just started murmuring. And while these conversations are great to start, and they've got to start somewhere, just repeating the same old what we already know and try and apply the same kind of methods and practice models that have not worked in the past means that the conversation is stalled. It's not really moving anywhere. And if you add the layer of cold and ethnicity to that, and then the intersections like temporary residency, well, you're well away from any kind of appropriate support. So I think Australia is doing really well in acknowledging we have this problem. But we're kind of floundering out there going, so what do we do about it? Let's throw some money at it here. Let's throw some money over there. Let's go and talk to people on a panel and then let's not do anything after that. So that's where we're at.
0: Mm. And you brought up a really great point also about you know, the added layer of complexity. I think both of you mentioned it when it comes to, you know, if you're a refugee or the cultural sensitivities as well that comes particularly with being South Asian, right, when it comes to domestic violence and divorce and all of that. Uh, But before we get into that, to kick off the whole topic around domestic violence in South Asian families, you've both worked with people who have experienced domestic violence. And from this experience, how common would you say that domestic violence is amongst South Asians? Because I feel like, you know, our community is very hush-hush. There's things that you shouldn't be talking about outside of your family and shouldn't be involving anyone else except, you know, your immediate family. So a lot of the time, you know, I feel like it goes so unspoken about, so you don't even know that it's happening as much as it really does.
2: I I agree with you. People don't want to talk about it. It's a forbidden topic. and Couple of things I will say later, but I think the stats are similar to what is happening in the Australian landscape. I don't think we have any accurate stats at the moment, though Kitu may have a few ideas as compared to the population of Indians in Australia, which I
3: think currently is seven hundred fifty thousand, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I think DV is very prevalent in our community. Absolutely, that people don't want to talk about it. I know when I first started ICSA, people were like ready to sort of like string me up going, how dare you? We don't air our dirty linen in public. What are you doing? But having said that, I don't think it's much different to the wider community. But in terms of how well reported it is and getting stats, even in areas like, say, Cumberland, where Indian subcontinent is not one of the highest ethnicities, But the underreporting is very high there. So you have to look at it in terms of when we start to measure, can we really measure it at all? And the other thing is when it comes to us admitting that there is domestic and family violence in our community, those words are just absolutely resisted. They're too confrontational. If I talk to my clients or their families and say domestic and family violence, you see the barriers go up. Mm. But if you talk about it in terms of do you have family problems, nearly everybody will go, yeah, of course, who doesn't? If you phrase it in that way and address it in that way, then people are far more willing to acknowledge that they've got a problem to be addressed. If you start looking at domestic and family violence, and this is, again, a Western lens, then we have a victim and we have a perpetrator. You're one or the other. There's no, you know, 50 shades of grey in that, just one or the other. And that is part of the problem is that in, and we find this in many things, mental health and other things, that we don't have the right words and the English words translated are just way too confrontational or judgmental.
1: Yeah. For sure. Um, I know you mentioned that a lot of what happens in the South Asian community doesn't go accounted for. So we don't have the numbers to completely understand how big the issue is. But we do know for a fact that a lot gets swept under the rug. Um, In terms of how domestic violence manifests, we spoke a little bit about the forms that domestic violence can take, which isn't just physical. What are the common forms that you see within South Asian
2: families? Normally, we have noticed it starts with financial abuse, being kept a very tight rein. Sometimes, sometimes it is connected with diary abuse. So that's another story. But usually it's threats and intimidation and uh, people being kept away, isolated. You're not allowed to talk to your family back home or over here, you know. Sometimes being denied privileges, I know of two or three cases where you're not allowed to go outside to shop for the family. So the woman stays at home while the husband goes out, or you're not allowed to have an iPad or an iPhone because you could contact your family and the children control it. So these are subtle ways of trying to really making the, usually it's the woman fearful for her life, feel isolated and feel
3: totally bereft. There's nobody here to look after me. Yeah, I think the number one manifestation would be financial abuse in our communities. And this is not just people who are in financial distress. Sometimes the more wealth, the more assets, the more property there is, the greater the financial control. Um, And we sometimes find this out, like in family dispute, if a couple do separate after many years of marriage and there's a couple of kids and all the rest of it, and they might have a few investment properties, that the woman sometimes doesn't have her name on any property title. The property is bought in a complex way, so it becomes very difficult for her to get her rightful share of the property. So financial abuse, I would say, would be top of the bill. The idea of shame and honour is the other one, that everything is built around this idea of what you do is shameful, it shames the family, shames you, shames your kids, shames the community. So that's a big driver as well. And that's where the coercive control often comes in. And then the other one that Menica mentioned is deportation, the threat of deportation. Even when you're a citizen, people can feel like he's going to take my citizenship away, you know, I'm going to be sent back, I will never see my kids again. The fear that's put into people of scaring them into being controlled is huge. And then we move on to the more culturally driven abuses, such as dowry, such as um, forced abortions, If it's a child, that's a female, you know, the honour-based violence. And we do have quite a bit of honour-based violence. And people often think that because I'm standing back and I'm not doing anything, but if a whole community is shunning a woman and ostracising her, because men generally don't get ostracised, women do, that's a community acting together. Whether you're doing it collaboratively, you are acting together to make that one person be more isolated. And that is one of the definitions of honour-based violence. Mm -hmm. So I think these sort of things that sort of are manifesting but have not got the framework around them do happen in our communities a lot, which then contribute into the other forms of family violence.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think you've raised a lot of really interesting points that we take for granted being citizens in Australia. Like we don't always think that there are these communities who have to deal with some of these issues. Like, you know, if I do leave my husband, then what does that mean for my migration status? Um, something we spoke about with our guests from last week's episodes who shared their experiences with domestic violence was how some of the cultural practices and cultural values, things like gender roles and uh, the relationship, or roles we play within our families factors into people's decisions and relationships when it comes to domestic violence. Could you share a little bit about what you've seen and what you've observed in our community when it comes to that side of the picture?
3: It's pretty much a given that, look, gender inequality exists in every community. In terms of women exercising their rights here, it becomes more difficult. Like I said, often the man has arrived early, he's a citizen, he knows more, and he can put in place a lot of things to help keep the woman ignorant of what her rights may be. And again, it comes back to I think our communities, and you know, a lot of people get very uncomfortable when I talk about the role of women in domestic and family violence. There's a good deal of violence provoked or influenced by women in our community. So when you look at mother-in-law's, sister-in-laws, you know, keep her in line make sure her father gives you so much or a gift or whatever. That is not done by men. That is done by women. And in order to coerce a woman, a mother-in-law or a sister-in-law can be, you know, absolute nightmares to live with. And often the man does nothing. It's not that he's physically being abusive. He's actually being abusive by doing nothing. He's not stopping that. He's not intervening. He's not, you know, giving her a break. And these sort of situations can really impact the way our next generations are being influenced into thinking what the role of a woman is. If mum is controlled and grandma who's in control, how does that work out for somebody who's a young child who's thinking, are women not in control? Because grandma is. She's ruling the roost. So these, these are challenges we've got with our next generations to try and identify, firstly, respect for women. And then some level of assertion does not mean that you're a very bad daughter-in-law or a bad daughter because you're speaking back, it means that you are just, you know, showing a little bit of independence. So some of these things may take some time, but I think there's a big influence because of those, you know, extended family structures that we respect our grandparents. We have respect for our uncles and aunties. So that all feeds into the gender inequality. And truly from the clients that I have, it's actually personally frustrating when you say you can do anything you want, it's your choice, but they just go, I don't know. No, no, just tell me what I need to do. We are all conditioned to a certain degree to oblige our parents and families. It's just a matter of how much you adopt that to then, you, you know, you can shed that and become independent, whether in a relationship or by yourself. True. Look, everything that
2: Kitu has said is absolutely true, and it sort of brings me back to my sociological, anthropological studies where Western society is very individualistic You have agency. You are allowed to do what you like. This is what I want to do in life. If I don't like this guy, I'm going to get rid of him and I'll go and find somebody else. Whereas in Eastern society, which is South Asian society, it's a very collectivist approach. Your family, your society, the community matters. You don't want to go against the values and beliefs that have been put into you for generation after generation. So we need to understand that. Young South Asians are coming into their own agency and independence, but the older ones are caught in between, as you have said, stuck in between, you know, you don't know. So you have to say one thing to your parents and grandparents
3: and another thing with your friends. And if I could just finish off on that, because I was born in the UK and I was that culture where we had very orthodox parents who told us how wonderfully great our values and cultures were in India, failing to realise that in 20 years, India's moved on, um, but we were really much the generation that when we were outside with our friends, we were very much British Asians, and we did whatever our friends did. But the minute you went home, you spoke the language, you ate the food, and you did. You know, you you're going out at the weekend was going to your cousin's house. We all worked in our family businesses because it was expected. But on top of that, it was a kind of default that when our friends, our white English friends, said, "So who are you going to marry?" we went, "Oh, whoever Mum and Dad say." We didn't even think about it. It was just a default reaction that we did not consider that actually, you know what, we're gonna make our own decisions. And some people did. Very hard for people to marry out of race or religion back then. But it was very hard. And when you saw how difficult it was for some people, you then ended up just going, you know what? So whatever, I'll marry whoever mum and dad say. So I don't know, I'm going to ask you guys, what do you think? (laughs) This is your generation.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is so interesting because for the earlier parts of my life, it was sort of that stuck in between thing where I was like one person at school and then maybe another at home. But then I think as I grew, and I'm also very fortunate to have understanding parents, I need to say that, um, And so I think I was able to find like a good balance of taking both of the cultures and finding a good medium in between. And I think this podcast has also really helped us, and and I can speak for Seven on this too, really identify what we like and dislike maybe about both these cultures that we're fortunate enough to really be part of. But yeah, I think it's so interesting the points that you just brought up, both of you, around you know, all the factors that play into an issue like domestic violence, and we could probably talk for hours on it, but it's just so many things that never even occurred to me. It's so interesting.
3: I have to say, by rule of thumb, the way we worked it out was take each bit of the culture that you like. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. <laughs> that's the great joy of being belonging to two separate cultures is you go, I'll have a bit of Christmas and a bit of Diwali. Exactly.
0: <laughs> the best of both worlds, right? <laughs> exactly. That's right. Yeah, Um. when you do speak, you know, with these people who come through to the both of you with, you know, domestic violence or trauma or problems at home and you kind of start to talk to them about all of these deep-rooted issues that might play into why they're going through what they are now, is there a general acceptance of the behaviour? Like, do they say, oh, like, that's just normal, though, you know, men always control the finances, or, you know, that's normal, like, he does this and and this is my task? Or does it take a little bit to really speak with them and and get them to understand
3: what's going on? I think... That is very true. What you've said is that a lot of women say, well, the men always pay for the bills and all the rest of it. I do the cooking, he looks after the car. But I don't want to trivialise it because when I see clients, they're usually at the height of crisis. So sometimes they've already been through me by the time you get to Menica, but at the height of crisis, nobody really can take in that much information. They can't reflect and be objective to any degree until some of the more practical needs have been addressed. Um, So, like, for instance, we had a young mum last week who is very, very agitated that her baby needs a vaccination and because of all this other stuff, which is, like, tremendously bad, a highly priced situation, removed from the home, all these things happening, but she's just focused on this vaccination. Now, the baby's not going to get harmed if it has to wait two weeks for a vaccination, but she's found something she can focus on, something she can control, And you have to understand when you're working with clients like this, that if that's the point you're going to start, you have to build on that. You cannot sort of bring it back and say, you know, this is what really your life should be like. This is what you could do. That comes way later. At the very beginning, we have to almost let the client guide us as to which bits we can and can't do because when anybody's in a high level of crisis, they're not going to think straight. So if you look at it in the way that, If you were coming through something like, you know, maybe at work, you've got a deadline, then you've got a family occasion and then your car's broken down, all these things all together and you start thinking in a very sort of um, sometimes irrational or panicky way, multiply that by 100 and you've got somebody who's just coming in in crisis with DV because everything in their life is about to change and they can only cope with certain amounts.
2: You're absolutely right, Ketu. You have to allow the clients to lead you as to where they want the help. There's no point trying to stuff the help you think they should be doing, like go from A to B to C to D, because that ain't going to work for this client. You need to get that fear, that anxiety, let them bring it out, ask them what they're really looking for, give them the support and also the respect that I think you are a very valid and a good human being And I want to understand what is your most urgent need so as to be able to help you. And that's the way you start rather than you got to do A and then B and C and D because they will have forgotten it the moment they walk out of the door.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know we've discussed this a little bit throughout the episode so far in terms of the barriers for South Asians to address issues of domestic violence but where do you think the barriers are and what do you think we can do to help overcome those barriers? Is it more education? Is it more services like what you're doing with ICSA? What could we be doing better?
2: All, I think, that's services, but let me just go and then I'll let Kido speak because she has all the idea on the services and funding that we need. But I think as we go back to it, talking to someone about your family situation is such a thing of shame and horror that people don't want to go and talk to anyone. Literally, it is the last resort that they've come to talk to you and pick up the phone and say, what can I do? So in a way, what we're trying to do is I want to help you. Are you feeling safe at the moment? What is happening for you? What is your greatest and most urgent need? And then we go from there. Uh, So what I discover often is to ask for mental health support is almost quite shameful because, you know, the usual thing is, am I mad? Am I an axe murderer? Why do I need mental health support? Rather than I go to a doctor when my arm is aching, you know, when I've got a headache, when I've got this or that. And, you know, mental health support is exactly that, giving you the help to regain and build
3: self-esteem and to find your own way in life. Yes. I'm going to sort of like kind of smooth over the barriers side because we haven't got enough time. <laughs> there's just too many. It's, it's kind of a thesis in itself. But some of the barriers that are personal to us within our communities and in our own families and friends is, as Menica said, there is a reluctance for people to talk. You see, clients are referred to us. I don't, often they don't choose to come to us and look up a service and go, I'm going to go and have a chat. So once they're there, there's already that sort of like, well, I have to come to you because the police referred me or this service referred me. And so part of that is because a lot of people are under the misconception that because you talk to family and friends, that that is your support network. Only, and That is your support network, don't get me wrong, but they are not professionals. And also they have their own perception of your situation. They may have their own investment and they may have their own agenda. So if I can give an example of, you know, we've all had that friend when you think, oh, my God, that boyfriend is an absolute whatever. You're going to tell her she's going to believe you? No, she's not going to believe you. But at the same time, the person who's being told that my boyfriend is not great or my husband is not great is going to say, well, okay, if they believe them, then that person might have an agenda in themselves. And family and friends often do, like especially your family, they go, oh, I told you you should never have married him. I told you should have married Mr. So-and-so's son down the road. You know, like so that's what you're, you're faced with. And added to that is that because our community really has a poor understanding of confidentiality. The definition of confidentiality is I only told my mum, I only told my brother. (laughs) (laughs) That's not confidential, so it's not a safe space. And so after people talk to us for a while and they get used to it and they understand that confidentiality means confidentiality, people come and ask us questions about the client. They don't get told. We seek their consent when we refer them to other agencies. So we keep their data and their issues private. Having said that, they will go and tell the whole world, but you know, we keep it private. And, <laughs> but once they get find that safe space and they feel like they can trust you and tell you anything, that's when you start really being able to. Go. Yep. But that's yep. a huge barrier in our communities. The idea of confidentiality, then maintaining your own confidentiality. And to just carry on from there, some of them have
2: actually. I won't say taken confidentiality or they've internalized it so much they're actually suffering deeply. You know, they get traumatized because they've not been able to speak out. And I call that not just social isolation, but ethical isolation. Who should I say anything to? Some of them say, if I said anything, nobody would believe me. And I have heard that from a few people. Nobody believe me because it's so egregious. It's so terrible, the things that have been done to me recently I had someone who's, even she didn't realise it, but the husband had put spyware on her phone. So, you know, those are the sorts of things that continue and you think, wow, I read that in a fairy story somewhere. No, but it's happening in real life. Mm.
3: Just as quickly cover your other barriers. We don't have any funded services for our South Asian communities, so let's get that out of the way. Those little pockets of money they announce all the time and go, you know, this MRC's got money for a DV worker, often not for refugees. A lot of our community are not refugees. There is a small section that is, but most aren't. So they don't fit into the eligibility criteria. There's a language barrier because even though many people do speak English when they've been here less than 10 years, their understanding of the system is not sufficient that they can understand the language they're being spoken to. And, again, I'll give you a quick example of this. I had a, was with a client in court the other day, and when the judge asked to plead guilty, he kept asking me, why should I plead? I'm not begging for anything. we take it for granted but it's a word and you translate it what does it mean so these are the sort of things that you know even if someone speaks English they don't understand the system that's a massive barrier and some of the really complicated situations that come up is because people have enough literacy skills and are educated enough that they think I've read it I've written it and I'm good at it but absolutely don't understand the system and that makes things worse
0: Yeah, that's so true. There's so many little things, like you said, that we take for granted that a lot of the time literally don't translate to to other communities and other people. And that's something that we also wanted to ask the both of you about as well. It's clear that the current services available for people in, in domestic violence situations may not be the best when it comes to, you know, dealing with South Asian people in particular as a community, you know, things like even hesitation to call the police, right, to to report things um, we know is an issue immediately calling 1-800-RESPECT and going into an exit plan is, you know, maybe not something that a South Asian woman or man want to do immediately either. And I know, Kitu, you just mentioned a couple of barriers, which I guess can also be changes that can take place, you know, in the, the Australian landscape. But what other changes do the both of you think we should be really putting in place to take into account those cultural sensitivities?
2: Kito mentioned a. Uh, uh something before we don't have enough words in mental health to be able to translate them properly so for instance the word for anxiety fatigue stress is all the same so how does a person tell me i'm anxious about this there's very few words for it so there's not good enough vocabulary the other thing is there is a lack of education in what i call common parlance in lay language so people can understand as Skittu will tell you about are recent COVID where we got a little bit of funding to be able to talk to the community. But most of the pamphlets that have been translated into other languages like Arabic or Hindi or Tamil do not actually give you the right information. So people are confused and they don't know what to do. And As most of all, we don't have a funded service. We literally, I would say, we go on the spell of an oily rag. And probably that's one of the things we hope that we can get the information out that the community can understand. And of course, the government, the funding, that we need funding to have culturally appropriate
3: casework and mental health work. I don't know that I can top that. No, I I think that Menek has covered it very well. I mean, in terms of the language and everything, and when we say what can we change, community education and awareness is not just about domestic violence is illegal. You can get help. And that's the message that's going out there. And what sort of help do you get? And I can tell you for a fact that if you're talking of financial abuse, and a lot of our community have learned these words, and they're very quick at using them. They are putting themselves into pigeonholes of, you know, this is what's happening to me. I've seen, it's like Dr. Google, you know, I've got a symptom, I can look up and I can diagnose myself. But just by saying that, in the really serious situations, like, for instance, financial abuse, if a woman sees that, generally it is a woman, and then goes to the police because that's what it says, call triple zero. And she says, my husband doesn't give me enough money to buy food and I can't feed the kids. And this has happened a lot with people who are on those partner visas where it's a work visa and the wife and children are dependent on the worker. And basically, even if they weren't on that visa, the police say we can do nothing. He hasn't committed a crime. And if he hasn't committed a crime, the police can do nothing. Social abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, mental abuse, isolation, none of these things are a crime. Mm. So the police can act on a physical act. So whether it's physical violence or sexual violence, they can act on that. And sexual violence is something that our community is definitely not ready to talk about yet. Yes. And from my personal experience of having been with women who have had to explain what's happened, I don't blame them. I think any woman going through that, just a police interview, is highly undignifying, humiliating and embarrassing. And even listening to someone and being a woman to woman, as you know, we try to do that, it's a horrendous um, experience to go through. Yep. And that's for any woman, anyway. That, you know, if you go with, doesn't matter about the language barrier or anything, for any woman, that's very humiliating to do that. And we haven't come across the part that once you've been through that experience, then you have to face the fact that prosecution is very unlikely. Mm. And if it does happen, it's very unlikely to succeed. And then you'll be sat in court telling everybody in the whole world these very intimate personal details. It's just, I mean, that alone describes just how the system does not work for the victim, it really works for the perpetrator. Correct, correct.
1: Yeah, last year after Grace Tam had won Australian of the Year and there were the stories coming out from our parliament of the sexual harassment that happened behind closed doors. We did an episode on sexual violence with an expert who was working in the space and we unpacked some of the stigmas and the barriers that you just touched on. One of the closing questions from that episode was acknowledging the fact that both men and women are affected by sexual violence. Yes. Mm -hmm. But that for the majority of the time, men are majority perpetrators what can men do to help shift the narrative when it comes to this topic? And what the expert talked to us about is that it starts with the conversations that we have with other men. Yep. Um, kind of asking you the same questions, but through a domestic violence lens, what can South Asian men do when it comes to domestic violence to change their narrative?
3: I'm gonna go first with this. We need to get rid of those god awful songs from Bollywood movies and the entertainment. And I, I know this is kind of a laughing matter in some aspects, but if you analyse those movies and those songs, they are very, very, you know, stereotyped. They, they promote the idea that a woman should be subservient, that a man should be in control in every aspect. And when they show a strong woman or an independent woman, she's kind of like the slutty bitch. And they don't talk about the successes of women and particularly some of the language in the songs. There's, you know, this trend towards using a lot of foul, vulgar language. And all of our languages in the Indian subcontinent, I believe, and I don't speak all of them, swearing is all about women. You know, like the F word in English, that can apply to anyone. But you take some of the swear words in Indian, it's always about humiliating a woman. And I've learned some of the swear words. I didn't know enough of them at first because I've had to interpret them. And I had to break them down to go, why is that offensive? And went, oh, okay, still connected to a woman. So I think how we can really how men can change things in our communities is to start using respectful language. Oh, yes. That is that is the first thing that you have to do. I mean, even from our movies, and that's why I talk about movies and entertainment, because it really is embedding that idea in tiny little children that I've got to be going out and punching a woman and this sort of thing. Um, if you look at the earlier movies, the language is always respectful. The music talked about love and romance, it didn't talk about this Game of Thrones kind of sexual exploitations and abuses. Yep. So that would be my number one thing. Yep. Respectful language and respectful relationships.
2: And if they haven't learned it, it's very hard to start it off, but sometime down the track if the couple is really interested, they need to engage in those respectful conversations as to how we can take our relationship forward. And it is in so many different ways. So I would say not only men, I think your question was something that how can men be? Yes, they can help other men to be respectful to the person. And the other one that I like is the bystander approach. You know, if you see somebody being violated, you see somebody being harassed, stand up and say, don't do that. I don't like it. And instead of turning our back and walking away on it, It should be whether it's in the family or in the community or at work. We need to be calling it out respectfully. We don't need to fight
3: about it and say that's not the way to behave towards a woman. Yeah, and if I was to give a subject for men if they want to talk about it, I'm not telling men what to do. I don't want to be in that position. Um, But I would say only maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if a man hit a woman, it was a cowardly thing. It was a shameful thing for any man to beat or abuse a woman. And you were called out for it. What has changed? Why has that pendulum swung the other way? So calling out, why is it more manly nowadays to be an abusive and controller? And the second thing I would say, and I have used this because I do have a lot of male clients who come in for things like FDR. And I often say to them, so if you're using this language to your wife and sometimes to the children as well, Well, surely your wife's respect is your respect. If you are abusing your wife and saying she's an X, Y, Z, then surely she's that to everyone else. But isn't that part of who you are? She's your family. She's the mother of your kids. You know, if you're going to abuse your wife or your mother or your sister and use this foul language, then you are really basically abusing yourself because men do say that the shame and honour is held by the woman. But if you are going to make your wife look like some kind of lowly vulgar woman that's a reflection on you and they don't often have a response although I've had one or two they've gone yeah I've never thought of it that way but it's something to think about one why is it not cowardly to be abusive now Mm -hmm. so that physical violence aspect I think has to come out to say why do you think that that makes you a stronger and greater bloke all
0: amazing points and I think Some of the the really great things you mentioned was the bystander effect. And I think that's so important, right? Because it creates a domino effect almost. So if you call it out when you see it, maybe that will kind of inspire someone else to call it out when they see it next time. Or even within your own home, if your children are seeing the way that you're treating your wife or your, your husband, that could be behavior they start to emulate. So it really can then become this really repetitive cycle as well so yeah really appreciate you sharing all of that with us i guess talking a little bit about icsa i know we spoke about some of the barriers and some of the changes we should make what are some of the unique attributes icsa brings when it comes to supporting south asian communities in particular
3: i think some of the unique attributes we bring is that we've been doing this now for nine years we have raw data we have client case management notes and we turn that into community intelligence and we package it up into training for other workers who are not from our background to help them to support other people. Because obviously, even if we were fully funded, we couldn't see everyone. So I think that's one of the things. But also, we've got a good set of cross-sectional skills whereby Menik and I do have some robust debates, you may not believe that, but we do, <laughs> about you know certain aspects of our culture and how we deal with it. And that's really important because I've got my experience. I grew up in a very small community in the UK and that community grew, became very successful. I came to Australia when the community was very small. That community has grown and is becoming very successful. So I have a different kind of experience of what it's like to be a migrant child and then a migrant myself, as opposed to Menika's experience of growing up in India and then living in Australia and being here when absolutely nothing was around. So I think these are the sort of experiences we have, but we seem to attract people who also have a very good lens on what the system can offer and how we can maximise it versus what our community needs. You know, we don't compromise on what our community needs because it fits the box. So square pegs into round holes all the time, but we're going to keep advocating on that and saying, look, we're not going to change into that round peg. We're going to stay square. You need to change Mm that
2: our approach is always culturally appropriate. We are not going to say to a person, do this or do that, because we know the culture. And very briefly, I have got clients, let's say, who come from the Muslim community. And one of them said to me, she says, when I spoke about the troubles I was having, I was told by this Anglo psychologist, well, just leave him and go. And she said, but I want my son to have a father. I want my son to know his grandparents. I'm not going to do that. I also understood where the problems were coming from because they belong to different sects within the Muslim community. So that was a very big intro. As soon as she heard me talk, she says, you understand? Yes, I do understand what you're talking about. How do we go from there and build respectful relationships with one another? And so that becomes a very big issue. Plus, as Kitu has said, we don't apply a run-of-the-mill approach. Everyone push into a box, you know, arms get chopped off if they don't fit. It's a very bespoke, a tailored approach. This is what's happening to you. What do we do from there? And what we do need, obviously, is funding, and we keep working at it. We're getting better, but obviously that is something that can make our work better and bigger and have more caseworkers on board.
3: And if I could finish with one thing that when I talked about our community intelligence, so one of the things that we do is a cultural mindfulness series of training which talks about arranged marriages. And while I was developing that, I went and did a bit of research on arranged marriages, and a lot of people still get surprised that around the world, arranged marriages are the most common form of marriage. This notion of Westernised falling in love meeting is not the most common form, whether it's Asia, Middle East, Africa, South America, China, arranged marriages are it. And arranged marriages have a pattern where you may or may not have the honeymoon phase, but the getting to know phase, the problematic phase, and then you might even have a split up phase. But the truth of the matter is that arranged marriages do survive better than non-arranged marriages. And that's just a fact
2: yeah
1: but I think just going back to the mission of ICSA and the work that you're doing I think it's just so powerful because what you've done is recognize that within Australia there isn't enough support and understanding of how minority communities deal with issues like this so you're able to fill that gap and start building and sharing that knowledge so then other people working in this space can understand and push the whole narrative forward not just for South Asians but for all minority communities and Australian society as a whole as our final question for anyone who's currently experiencing domestic violence themselves or know someone who is navigating that what advice would you give them
3: I would say it's what we always say is to talk to someone find somebody you're close to it's very hard for us to give advice and say go and do this because some people are not in a situation to be able to just to anyone like Menica said phones can be you know have spyware on them people are followed all the time they're never alone they can't talk So only that person knows who they can talk to and when. So whether it's a doctor by themselves or whether it's at the school or something, a neighbour, when the partner's not around, start to talk to someone. If you really can need that, you look, I need to get out and talk to someone else. Then once you get involved with a service, not necessarily just our service, they can often help you build a safety plan. And to start working out how to either address your issues or if you need to leave and it's not safe for you. And that's something I will say that while we have talked a lot about we don't want a separation model for domestic violence as the only response. We want to have a safe and together one. But there are times when people sometimes don't even realise the kind of risk they're at. Mm. And we have to remember that many of the really serious or fatalistic incidents that happen 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 when those arguments have escalated. Not many people go out of their way to kill their partner or accidentally kill their children. It happens when one of those instances has escalated. It goes too far, you hit too hard, you fall onto something, a weapon is used. So you don't want it to get to that. And sometimes that third party is the one that can best assess your risk and look at your safety assessment. So very rarely do we actually say it, but sometimes we do, that you need to leave. We think it's unsafe for you. But beyond that, in the early stages, if you're just trying to get support, talk to somebody that you trust Mm. and then ask them to talk to somebody who can offer. Because sometimes the advice we give to a person in their own situation is to a second or third party down the track because that person doesn't want to connect with us because people now know what we do. Mm. And
2: that's exactly what I would say. Literally, often I say on the phone too is come and talk it over. Let's look at your options. You know what what is hurting or you know stressing you out at the moment. How, how can you be more safe? And then the conversation will lead you to understand how dire the situation is or not. You know if there is hopes of reconciliation, if there's a hope that we can just talk and meet together, absolutely we will talk about that. But if it is dangerous, then we would be saying to them. There are agencies and there are we do too. We can help you with trying to make a life for yourself.
3: And the other thing is never underestimate what the police can or can't do, even if it isn't a physical thing and you feel unsafe. A lot of people say, I didn't call the police because I didn't want to bother them or that they wouldn't believe me. That is not for you to think about. The police have a job to do and they need to do it. So if you call them out, it's not like you're going to pay a service fee. It's their job. And they trained people to recognise situations of danger that you may or may not. And even if it's just a call out and nothing else happens, that's fine. Don't be feeling guilty because you called the police sir, and you just had a bad moment. If you're feeling unsafe, triple zero is the only number you ring. Yep, great.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice. Well, Menika and Kitu, thank you so much for your time and bringing your expertise to have this important discussion. Romy and I are so inspired by the work that you guys are doing, and we're so proud in our very, very small way to be supporting ICSA and the Behind Closed Doors event.
3: Thank you. Great. And thank you. It's a good interview. Good questions. You really picked our brains.
1: Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope that this conversation gave you as much insight and inspiration as it did for us.
0: Again, we want to mention that if this topic is triggering, please don't hesitate to speak to someone and reach out to services like 1800RESPECT or 000 if you're in immediate danger. Make sure to also check out our episode notes to learn more about ICSA and the upcoming event Behind Closed Doors.
1: And of course, catch up on our mini episode and first installment as part of this series if you haven't already done so. We'll catch you next time where we chat with fashion blogger and stylist Tina Abisakura from Trash to Treasure. We'll see you then.
2: Bye.